Hey there, welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and we are, hopefully with your help, just trying to make the world 10% nicer. Anyway, what you're here for today is a really great talk with painter, artist, and just really cool human being, Isabel Samaras. Isabel is known for lush, meticulously painted riffs on old masters that feature pop culture icons of the past. Isabel Samaras' ribald images are woven with references to classic horror movies, ancient mythologies, cherished TV characters, tribal societies, and childhood fairy tales. Magical realism and the forbidden fantasies of fabled characters frolic in a world where elusive desires become reality, reimagining ill-fated journeys that turn into enchanted honeymoons. A common thread that runs through much of Samaras' work, like a red string tied to her heart, is that of love. Maternal affection, romantic devotion, illicit enchantments, tender yearnings, unrequited passion, and the idea that everyone, even monsters or disembodied hands, can find someone to love them. Her painted narratives, classical in technique, and pop in content often revolve around issues of making things end the way we wish they would. Exploring what if and why not, she brings human desires and foibles to fictional characters studying the human condition through the eyes of popular culture by jamming old and new together in the visual equivalent of a mashup song. Dang, that was good. Isabel, if you wrote that, bravo. I really, I should have practiced it. I could have nailed it. Anyway. You excited for this conversation after that? Because I'm going to skip the whole part of the intro where brands and and, and podcasts are supposed to sell merchandise and events and doodads, whatever. Because you just don't really need that, do you? Not this soon after getting out of the Christmas bombard. Oh, Merry Christmas. It's Christmas right now and we're recording this. So, hey, Merry Christmas. But just out of getting after being bombarded by ads and, and everything just trying to suck your soul and your money and leave you wasted and withered. No, not going to sell you anything here other than the idea of trying to be a little nicer to yourself in 2021. And, you know, maybe, of course, the rest of the world. Now, before we get into this conversation with Isabel, one that, mind you, will teach you... uh, Yeah, there's some reminders. Got to watch El Topo tonight. God, that's a great movie. Anyway, we'll teach you not just about Isabel's work and her story and her arc, but that birds will bring you happiness. Yeah, that's one of the things. Isabel knows a lot of weird stuff, a lot of happiness hacks. Uh, We also talk naked Batman, naked Batman, which is something I've wanted to get into with a guest for a long time. Took 46 episodes, and I'm happy to say I got it done. But before that, I mean, which Batman did you envision when I said that? I mean, which actor? Just message me, let me know. I'm just, I'll take it. It's a informal poll, won't name names. Before that, I'd love it if you'd familiarize yourself with Isabel's art by going to isabelsamaras.com. I'll spell it for you. I-S-A-B-E-L-S-A-M-A-R-A-S.com. Go to isabelsamaras.com. Take, take a look at the paintings, put them up on your screen so you can see Isabel, her work, what we're talking about, you know, just what kind of painter she is, what kind of artist she is. While you're doing that, because that's going to take you a second, right, to type that in. I'm going to go do some super nice things, like rescue an old lady from a tree and help some kittens cross the road, you know, just being super nice. Okay? Okay, so you do that. Hey, I'm back. Uh, all right, that joke landed about us. 
flat as uh, my Peloton sculpted abs. Yeah, thank you, sponsor Peloton. Thank you. Keep those checks coming. No, not true. I'm not landing them today at all, am I? Like, not even close. It's cool, though, because this is not a comedy podcast. This is serious, soul-stirring stuff that will inspire you to be better and, and, and riskier and go for it ear go for it ear go for it ear and stuff you know that's that's what this podcast is about all right so let's get to isabel right now because i've got like so much chocolate to eat inside um but like okay not to like be a hater on the person that, that gave me the chocolates but there's no map there's no little this is caramel this is you know salted ganache this is mushroom, uh, tomato paste, chocolate, whatever, right? There's no way to know before you bite into it. And that's just, I don't, I, some people bite off a little corner, try to be all cute. Like, ah, oh, look, I bit off a corner. Nobody will see. Now you got to eat the whole thing. Anyway, if you make chocolate, if you know someone who makes chocolate, if you ever want to start a chocolate company and you're going to put more than one in a box, be sure that you label that stuff. It's just, it's, that's part of making the world nicer. Really is labeled chocolate boxes. That's, 0.3% of the 10% nicer. All right, done with that. You ready for Isabel Samaras? Great. <laughs> Jesus. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Isabel Samaras. I'm not going to re-record that. It's perfect. Isabel Samaras, thank you for being here today. Hi. Hi. Where are you? Where are you? Who are you? What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> I'm in the East Bay. Um, I'm packing up a lot of stuff. I, I have a very busy uh, Christmas season all of a sudden, which was sort of unexpected. And it's entirely my own fault. I unleashed a bunch of stuff that I was just sort of hanging on to for no particular reason. So suddenly I'm making daily trips to the post office, which is fine. I can't complain. I just got back from the post office. The post office is what I currently identify as my COVID risk point. Because it's pretty much yes. the only place I go, and it's sometimes absolutely packed where I'm uncomfortable. Last time I went, I found myself standing kind of in this corner, like again, facing away from everybody, bowing down, being like that guy. Like, yeah. I just don't want to get COVID from somebody no, here. No, it's awful, um, and you just feel sort of trapped. And I've just started putting priority shipping on everything, so then I can be that person who just jets in with the teetering leaning tower of pizza stack of stuff just walk right past all the lines put on the counter everybody gives you the dagger hate eyes yeah. you know and you just have to go it's prepaid i, I you could do this too i printed my labels at home <laughs> you know and you throw it and then leave you just throw exactly. it on the counter and run out the door yeah so yeah unless it's international shipping so you know because for super nice club people are people are buying things for the holidays and i've promised them like same day shipping and i think when i when i say that people just sort of think oh there's like a a super nice club warehouse and office. Right. These things are, you know, coming out on conveyor belts and shipping. The robots will go yeah, get like, it for them. Actually, I'm walking into my garage past the, the yoga mat that I don't use and going to the, the shelving of goods and pulling something <laughs> down and printing click and ship on USPS. And that's, you know, <laughs> hey, well, I you didn't know? properly answer your question. I mean, I am not just a person who goes to the post office a lot. I'm a painter uh, and an illustrator. And that's, that's primarily how I spend the bulk of my time. So, yeah. And, and often going to the post office, but yes. Uh, so for those of you out there who did not heed my request to Google Isabel and check out her work before continuing to listen, I'm just going to ask you again to do that, even though you might be driving. Drive put safe. It on, 
Yeah, just drive safely and do it. Have your kids do it. It's fine. Have your kids steer. For those who who have not, will you just sort of the best you can describe your your painting style and approach? It it used to be easier for the longest time. I think I made my bones as a painter. What people mostly know me for is doing sort of the visual equivalent of a mashup song, taking these sort of old master classical paintings and mash them up with pop culture references. And that's based on all of my uh, obsessions, all the things that I was really into when I was a kid, the kind of TV shows I loved, the the movies, the music, the monsters, everything that I was super into, spent a fair amount of time just sort of percolating and marinating in my brain. And then, you know, at a certain point, you start looking at all this other stuff, and these things start making these connections. So it wasn't sort of random. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to take this character from the Dukes of Hazard and stick him in a, you know, Van Gogh painting. Like that has no interest to me. It's about finding connections. Like what, what was the common element between, it's going to sound like really heady, but the, the common element between like a, a Manet, you know, nude, these odalisques that was all about this idea of Orientalism and how exotic people were traveling at that time and were hearing about like, what, there's these harems? Like what the, oh my God, and getting all sort of titillated. That's really closely connected in a very specific way to shows like I Dream of Jeannie, where it's this idea of like, what, you found her in a bottle and she has to do whatever you say? What? Like that same kind of titillating thing in the back of your brain, like those those were the kind of things that I was trying to connect with because paintings used to be events. You would go and see this person's new painting like unveiled. Everybody would go, you'd get dressed up and you'd go and they'd pull the curtains back and painting, you know, and we don't have that same relationship with paintings and we wouldn't know who those characters are, right? Like they would put in identifiers, you know, to let you know that it's a character from a Bible story or from Greek mythology. We wouldn't know most of those symbols. But if I put in a character from, you know, Star Wars or something, like everybody knows who that is. And you bring that knowledge with you to look at the painting. So they have layers. You know, you could look at it and you could get all these references or you could just go, hey, that's a really pretty picture of a naked lady. And that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no problem with that. So I think that's where I got into your work originally. It's just like naked ladies naked are the lady. gateway to the yeah. rest of my art. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I really like what you were saying about how back in the day, whatever, let's call it 1624, somebody does a painting and they do this unveiling, right? They do this yeah. unveiling, and now it's just like, hey, Instagram, new piece, right. click. Made a run in a of a hundred new pieces. Exactly. Yeah. What about that? You ever think about going back to that? Just advertising for like a month. I'm going to unveil like a photo of like this drape over a piece. I know. I mean, people would think you were being hammy, but it'd be kind of great. I I'm cheesy by nature anyway, so I could see that being fun. But my my particular bend on it, what I had actually intended to be doing this holiday season, and then, of course, COVID happened and my life went sideways, but what I've always wanted to do was that, but with miniature art. Like, what I wanted to do was have, I have this hallway in my house. It's not very big. It's like between the bathroom door and the door to sort of the living room. There's this hallway. And my theory, my thought, my idea, my dream was to fill this hallway, a very limited amount of space, with a lot of miniature art. Like, nothing in there is bigger than, say, four or five inches. I like painting miniatures. They're small. They're they're kind of, it, you have to have a different relationship with a tiny piece of art. You have to get up close to it. It's a very one-on-one thing. You can't look at it with a whole bunch of people. You know, a big art is a bunch of people event. Little tiny thing is a very personal thing. It's just you and the painting getting up close and personal. 
And what I wanted to do was <laughs> fill this wall with these little tiny paintings and then just post a picture of that wall and be like, this is the show. This is the work that's available. This is all the space. And be, you know, the equivalent of like a virtual curtain pull. If I could pull it off, I would have a curtain on this wall in the hallway and invite people over and then like, dun, 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 and pull the curtain back and let people see the work. And then hopefully, you know, snatch up tasty little tiny paintings. The, the funny thing is like when I've had little bits of downtime, I, I have a very packed schedule uh, usually. And when I have a little tiny bit of downtime, it's fun for me to do a little miniature painting. You know, you don't, you don't have time to do a bigger piece to get right. super sucked into something, but you want to, you still want to paint. You still want to make stuff. So I've been doing these little miniature paintings, planning to do this hallway show. Right. But it's become clear to me, this is never, ever going to happen, at least not in the immediate future. So I just started posting them the last couple of days in my, um, in my shop online and just going, you know, I give up this, this wall thing is not going to happen, but I don't want to keep hoarding these tiny paintings. So I've just been putting them up for, for people to snatch up now, which is nice actually, because hoarding them doesn't feel right either, you know? So they're out in the world now, some of them, some of them are going out in the world next week. And they're so much easier to ship. So oh, much yes. easier to ship than, than full-size paintings. And you don't have to be scared of what's going to happen to your big painting when it gets yeah. shipped. Yeah. I always feel like a mother hen. Once something leaves the house, I have that kind of like, oh, oh, you know, until I know for sure that it's arrived and it didn't get stomped on or something. There's, It's nerve-wracking. It's nerve-wracking. Shipping art is, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm but there's no your getting min- around it, so. I'm seeing your miniature painting right here of Chewy. Yeah. Um, in so honor that's of one of the Peter pieces Mayhew. that I, yeah. yes, I painted that. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to just do a whole bunch of portraits of all the people that have passed away recently that were, you know, important or dear to me. And that's as far as I got with that before I got, you know, sucked back into my commissions and show schedules and all the other stuff. So rather than just hoard it myself and keep it, I just decided to release it. You know, it's like letting a bird go, like let it go, let it, let it go out into the world. It's okay. How did you find that? You must've found the frame first. That's an insane oh, yeah. frame to find. I have a a hoarding thing with frames. I've been collecting frames for years. Uh, I go to the Oakland Museum White Elephant Sale. A friend of mine has estate sales, and she often will call me and let me come and cherry pick stuff before they open them to the public. Um, when we could do things like the Alameda Flea Market, that was a great oh, place. Oh, that to is buy, such a good know, flea market. Yeah. eBay you sometimes. go all the way to the back of it. Yes, go to the back. Laid out on sheets, right? It's a <laughs> right. bunch of garbage and it looks septic. But... <laughs> on a tarp. <laughs> yeah. So I have I have probably over 100 uh, frames right now. Some of them are very small, thank God, so it doesn't take up a whole lot of space. But I have a little bit of a frame addiction. And I think that's the other reason why I want to just keep sort of working on these miniatures is to, to get some of these frames back out. Otherwise, I'm going to drown. If you want to see some really cool miniatures next time you're down in L.A., and you may have already checked this place out, it, it's sort of a different take on it. Uh, the Museum of Jurassic Technology. It's a place I keep meaning to go. go. I haven't. Oh, I know. It's been on my list for years. Favorite place in L.A. Yeah. yeah. Straight up. Museum of Jurassic Technology. I've got to get that guy on this podcast one of these days. I did a little stalking online. Found out. <laughs> As, as you do, you, you prep a little bit, uh, found out that you grew up in Arlington, Virginia. I did. Correct? Yeah. I've been to Alexandria. That's the closest I've gotten. All I remember was like this big, long, really big, long tobacco building with lots and lots of windows. Does that sound familiar? Do you know what? Nah, Alexandria is cool. <laughs> Alexandria is, I would say, more interesting. I mean, Alexandria, you've got like old town Alexandria and it has like cobblestone streets and cute little sort of, you know, colonial style shops and everything. Arlington is just a suburb of Washington, D.C. I shouldn't 
you know, I, I'm fascinated by people who love where they grew up. I mm. don't feel that. Like, I did not have that experience. You know, I was born in New York, and my parents, uh, my mom was went back to her parents. They were in the Foreign Service. We traveled a lot overseas when I was really little. And then they just settled in the burbs outside of D.C. because that's what they knew. And I never felt right there. You know, I just, my whole early childhood was just a total fish out of water, alien landed on the wrong planet kind of experience. I never felt at home. I never felt right. I always felt like the oddball. Um, I'm sure I was <laughs> the oddball <laughs> in so many ways. Um, you know, and it wasn't until I left and moved to, you know, back to New York that I was sort of like, ah. Here are my people. It's like this is this is where I belong. They talk fast like I do. They walk at the appropriate brisk pace that I like to walk at. You know, it's like it's like finding your school of fish. You know, you sort of your herd of antelope. It's like, oh, these antelope are my antelope. We all run and jump high and we talk really fast. Like that's the place that feels right to me. Um, and then oddly now I, I am in California, so go figure. But yeah, yeah, it's a little different pace. The pace of New York is is an incredible thing. I get that though. I grew up in. Well, a, a number of different cities, but the biggest chunk, I think we were there for almost six years, um, Redding, Redding, California. That's my like second through eighth or ninth grades or something like that. And I just, yeah, it's the same feeling like, wow, this is, this is not home. Right. I know. <laughs> you know it's beautiful. But isn't it, isn't it fascinating when you talk to somebody who has this very romantic sort of idealized vision of, or they just naturally love where they grew up and they can't wait to like go back or they want to spend their whole lives there and they never left. Like, I don't, I don't quite understand that. I don't either. I am a little jealous of it. I think it sounds amazing. I've also also loved the uh, the idea of a family home. You know, yeah. like that one home that the family's had for right, years for and everybody goes back to for the holidays. It's the one on TV. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That would be great. Not going to happen for me, but I love no, it. No, yeah. we didn't have that either. I mean, I, I was raised by a single working mom and we only, we never owned anything. We rented and we moved every two years, you know, so there was a lot of moving around. There was a lot of, you know, new, newness within that area. And I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it must be like to have like a home where all the family goes back to every Christmas and everybody gathers and summer vacations back at the family compound or something. I can't even imagine. It's it's unknown to me. So if you have that and you're out there and you take it for granted, don't. Right, folks? <laughs> Appreciate. It's, pre it's pretty awesome. Okay, so you were, you were in Arlington. Uh, then you graduated from Parsons. You started painting lunchboxes. Yes, and now you're a famous painter. Is that, well, is that it? Did I leave yes. anything out? <laughs> if you take that, if that was printed on a piece of chewing gum, you'd need to stretch it a little, <laughs> stretch those words out a little bit. Um, it's not quite that expedient, but basically, yeah, tiny, tiny little red haired bat out of hell. Like as soon as I could graduate high school, off back to New York City, um, went to Parsons School of Design, started hilariously went there planning to study something that turns out they don't have a major in. So had to kind of shift focus, you know, midstream, which turned out fine. I mean, at the time they were teaching, um, the fine art department was really heavily influenced by this kind of Neo Geo movement, like, uh, geometric abstraction hmm. could not be farther from what I'm interested in. Right. 
Right. <laughs> um, but I sort of flipped sideways into the illustration department, kind of somewhat naively going like, well, I like to draw, I like to paint, I like to do printmaking. That's what I thought I was going to study. It was printmaking. I'd been studying printmaking at the Corcoran School of Design in D.C. and went to Parsons Plain to be a printmaker. Um, only to discover that while they indeed, yes, had a print department, I was not wrong. I had seen it. They had presses and everything. They didn't have a print major. <laughs> so um, shifted, went into illustration, not entirely understanding. It seemed like a very practical decision. You know, it was like, this is, I will get to draw, but people will pay me. You know, having, having been raised, I think, by a single working mom, I was hyper aware of, I will need to fend for myself. You know, I was not thinking like, and I'll marry someone and they'll take care of me. You know, it's like, I will have to be my own support system. So that seemed very practical. And now that I have all this sort of uh, perspective, um, I can see that that was the perfect education for the kind of art that I want to make because they were talking about ideas and narrative and storytelling and all this stuff that is really at the core of what I do. You know, like I love the idea of visual storytelling. I love it. And that's what I got from the illustration department, which I don't think at that time existed in that form in the fine art department at that school. It just, that's not what the focus was. Um, so I have no regrets about that. I mean, it's just funny. It's like I, I often say that like having red hair means I have the Lucille Ball gene and it has guaranteed that my life is a bumbling comedy. Like, you know, you just kind of stumble through things like, oh, meant to do this, ended up doing that, but it worked out okay. This is not to say that there have not been hardships, but for the most part, I have this sense of like, things will mostly generally work out. I may trip and fall, but... Odds are good something will catch me or I won't fall in a pile of nails. <laughs> you're you're stumbling, stumbling forward, right? Yes, that's a yeah. good way of saying it. Yes, I would like to believe that I am stumbling forward. Speaking of, you referenced Lucille Ball. Did you know that, maybe you know this because, you know, redheads all know each other's stories, right? Uh, <laughs> We're all part she, of the she ended up. She ended up being one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. Wealthiest, yeah. powerful. Yeah, she's she was a badass. Yeah. Didn't she have something to do with star, the reason that Star Trek actually got on the air? Like yeah, she, she was promoted. the one who, who pushed it. Yeah. She was the one who put And Star Trek, I mean, at least, I don't know, I'm not speaking for you, but is a sci-fi that is really, over the decades, been the one that has had the most cultural commentary and has pushed the boundaries. Right. And, you know, it's the most important sci-fi in a lot of ways. If you're going to compare it to, say, Star Wars or... Oh, for sure. Buckaroo Banzai, which I love. <laughs> That's my all-time favorite. You know, for me, it's Buckaroo Banzai, Star Trek, you know, and then maybe um, Escape from New York. And then... Oh, yeah. You're hitting all my favorites. That's, that's a good <laughs> list. That is a solid list. I was obsessed with Escape from New York when that movie came out. I just remember just like being like, what is this? Oh, I love this. I watched I it again a few why. months ago. It totally holds up. Snake Plissken. Love it. Snake yeah. Plissken. Yeah. He was hot. Um, he was just, yeah, Kurt Russell. And what was his mm -hmm. other, there was a John Carpenter one, another one um, that he was so good in. The Thing. Uh, the Well, The Thing, of course. Yeah. He's brilliant in that. That's a great yeah. movie. That is just a great John Carpenter and Kurt Russell together. Yeah, mm. that's, that's a dream that's team. A combo, really. That's that a dream, dream team right team. there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about um, learning storytelling and the importance yeah. of it. And your paintings typically, of course, tell stories. Stories that are, uh, and correct me, you know, where I stray, but uh, there are a lot of times they're they're based on stories or the work of a past master. 
with an updated twist. And many of those, of course, trace back to the Bible, right? Yeah, a lot of those classical, sort of what you think of as sort of like museum art, like a lot of that stuff traces back to Bible stories and Greek and Roman mythology, right? You know, so all that stuff has this kind of weight, you know, there's a certain weight to some of those stories that I that I find really appealing, you know, some of those things are, and it's fun to kind of put a twist on them. And now things are kind of shifting a little bit. You know, I'm doing work that is often a little bit more personal. Um, I still like to think that some of these things are, are relatable or interesting or funny. I don't think, you know, I'm not really interested in making like sort of preachy work, you know, telling you like, this is what you should do and how you should think about things. It's like, that's not really interesting to me. But I like... I like the idea that there's sort of an, an open-ended narrative. Like even in the paintings that were referencing a specific story, I like the idea that because I've I've brought hopefully, you know, these different kind of characters in it, you might look at it a different way. And it's kind of up to you to decide like which way the story is going. Is it going this way or that way? You know, is it going towards happiness? Is it going towards sadness? Is it going towards romance? Is it going towards breakup? Is it going towards, you know, hopefulness or, or despair? I I tend to be, I try, I, it's an effort, but I try to be an optimist. I mean, just generally, I think that's an easier road to hoe through life <laughs> than to sort of be, you know, like the, the Debbie Downer about everything. I, I can have that, um, that attitude about things from time to time, but generally, yeah. So I've already strayed so far from the question. I think no, the, it's great. the idea is just about narrative and storytelling is important to me. I loved books when I was a kid, I was really an avid reader, which is sort of the side product of being, you know, the weirdo. You don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> you need to pass the time. And I chewed my way through, you know, our town's library. I just started at one end of like the science fiction and fantasy zone, you know, shelf and chewed all the way through, you know, Ray Bradbury all the way to uh, Roger Zelazny. A to Z, oh, B to Z. Done. You could have gone Asimov, uh, I guess. <laughs> I know Asimov to Zelazny. <laughs> you do that, and you really it it sort of opens your brain to this idea of other possibilities, right? And multiple mm -hmm. worlds, and a lot of what if, and that is probably what I think most of my work is about is sort of a what if, you know? So things that were upsetting to me. It's like, God, why can't Catwoman and Batman ever just like settle into a nice space in their relationship? You know, this has since been explored heavily in comics and film. But at the time, certainly when I was a kid, this was not resolved. And that's something that I wanted to take on in paintings. And you read all this science fiction. It's like, well, we live in a multiverse. You know, maybe in this universe, it's going this way. But what about in this other universe? James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein breaks my heart every single time I see it. But what if maybe that's the way it worked out in this universe? She sees him, screams, everybody goes up in flames, the end. You know, like, yeah. that <laughs> sucks. <laughs> like, that is just so sad. But maybe in the parallel universe next door to ours, they see each other. It's love at first sight. They go traipsing off, you know, to build a life together. I could I could paint about that for 100 years and never get tired of it, of just creating a happier version of things. Because that's what I want to see. 
Do you ever think that in that alternate universe, there's a painter painting? God, what if what if she took one look at him, screamed, yeah. and everything went to hell, right? Yeah, I have I have an evil twin somewhere in the multiverse who's doing the opposite of what I do. Who's painting like the doom and gloom version of every story, <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood, and the wolf eats Red and digests her and shits her out in the end. <laughs> Yeah, this is the the beauty of I, I read a lot of books too. I mean, I, I was just as you were talking about that, I was remembering all of a sudden all these Piers Anthony books that oh, I read yeah. as a kid. Uh, Robert Heinlein, everything that he's ever written, uh, and so many of these sci fi. And it is I was just thinking, wow, you know, they were dropping the multiverse stuff as far back as the fifties and sixties, and that does open you up to possibilities. I hadn't really thought about that before. It can sort of pre wire you for some of these concepts that are becoming more and more sort of scientifically plausible. And we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I've always kind of figured that. Stupid scientist, of course there's a multiverse. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's way to catch up. But doesn't that feel right somehow? To me, it feels like there's some deep truth to it. And somehow inside us, I think we know it, that there's this constantly branching world of possibilities. And for every decision you've made, that there's like an infinite world spanning off into infinity of like, and in this world, you turned left. And in this world, you picked frozen peas. And in this world, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't know. That just feels real to me. I, I agree. I'm, I'm what you would call a, a possibilian. And that's uh, yeah. sort of a term founded by this neuroscientist with a great book called Sum, S-U-M, Short Stories of, of Possible Afterlives. It's Ooh. amazing. Everybody buy a copy of Sum. It's like eight bucks and it's the best bedtime reading you'll ever get. But he started this, not a religion, but a, 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 <laughs> a way of okay. looking. <laughs> Just called it being a possibility. In other words, you're not necessarily an atheist or uh, anything like that. You're just open to anything. Like, yeah, anything could be possible. And I've kind of always been that way. Just like if I would looked out my backyard one day and I saw a 300 foot tall Godzilla, you know, spitting laser beams on downtown LA, I kind of think I'm pre-wired to be like, yeah, well, mm-hmm. there's that. So that's what it really is all about, huh? Okay. I, you know, it just keeps me open to anything. Or maybe, maybe the Bible is 100% factual. Right? Won't that and, be a shocker? Noah did his thing in 40 days and 40 nights. And although that's based on Sumerian mythology, but whatever. Maybe Maybe the Sumerians were right. Yes, you know, so being a possibilian opens me up. And I love, I just had to insert that in there, somehow it related, I'm not sure how. Yeah, no, I like the the idea of possibilian. I think that's great. But I think I I heard you writing something down. No, no, no. No? You didn't write the title of the book down? Oh, I did. God, did you you pick that up? I did, I wrote down some-book. I did, yeah. That's a sensitive microphone. Yeah, well, you what know, am I doing now? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> people don't use pens and paper, pens and paper, very often anymore. So I'm, I'm sensitive to it. And that that oh, thing that we I'm talked about earlier, books, paper-based life form. You know, yeah, books are getting rarer and rarer. So I was going to ask you about. I guess it kind of relates just about your earlier work that you were talking about. Uh, I guess you would call it classic Samaris work, something like what's the the planet of the uh, Simeon women. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Is that the, yeah. is that the title? Simi yeah. Women. The abduction yeah. So the of the Simi women. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a classic piece of yours. Like when I think of your work, that comes to mind for me and probably a lot of other people that, that know your work. I had that idea for 10 years 
before I painted it. Like I had that idea. I loved the Peter Paul Rubens painting that it's based on the abduction of the Sabine women, I think. And I just thought there was there was such a strong connection in my mind between that painting and what I wanted to do. Partly because I think the idea was first coming into my head during the Bush years and, you know, the war in Iraq and all this stuff. And, and we were going to protests and I was very... Uh, upset about this stuff and I was thinking a lot I mean because this is the way my brain works about in the Planet of the Apes movies there's the kind of like peace and science loving chimps and then there's the warlike apes and the warlords and you know just this dichotomy in their society and I was like Jesus you know we are the chimps and the apes and in our I mean we are like 90 something percent simian you know monkey to begin with obviously so to me that seemed like such a natural thing the, the problem was at that time two problems two problems. I'm holding my fingers up. You can't see. I make a little peace sign for one and two, two problems. One, at that time I was painting on a old vintage tin TV trays, which I loved. At the time, I felt like that was the perfect medium for my message, right? Because I was referencing these childhood uh, sources, these TV shows and things that I had, I had taken in sitting at my grandparents' house, eating my dinner off one of those folding TV trays. And so to do the painting on one of those things, plus I loved, I could get them from the local Salvation Army for $2.50. They were indestructible. So talk about like painting, you know, shipping small paintings, shipping a TV tray was great. Self-framing, you know, I would epoxy a piece of wood on the back and screw some framing hardware into them. I just, I thought they were just genius. I was so happy with that whole period of my career. But this image needed to be bigger, right? It's it's an impactful painting. It needed to have physical heft to it that I didn't want to paint these little characters with heads the size of grapes. You know, I wanted that, that horse and that other horse to have like some heft. I wanted the physicality of this, you know, this reaching and pulling thing to really be a little more visceral. So two problems. One, I was painting on teeny tiny TV trays. Everything was approximately like 12 by 16. Two, I didn't think my skill set was there yet. I really loved the way this image looked in my head and I didn't feel that I was capable yet of achieving what I could see in my mind's eye with my painting skills at the time. So it took me literally 10 years from when I first started imagining this painting to when I felt finally one day like, you know what? I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to do this painting. I think I've got it right now. I think I have it. I think I can do it. And it's it right now, I think that's the biggest piece I've painted since art school. And it was really satisfying to finally get out there. But, you know, like everything, like nothing, if I didn't, if I didn't varnish things and send them away, I would never finish a painting. Like even now, if I look at that painting, it's like, oh, I could add more detail to Ape City. You know, oh, I could put stitches in their shoes. You know, it's like th there's just my brain will always have some little level of detail that I can go back to. But um, yeah, finally done. <laughs> <laughs> Check mark. <laughs> so as an artist who produces, you know, a, a good amount of work, do you ever feel that your past work worked like, you know, the work that you just discussed, Simeon Women, does it have a like a weight to it that sets sort of a certain expectations for, for what you're doing now? Or do you feel free of that all the time? I I might feel more free than the average bear, just mm -hmm. because I sort of made some decisions earlier in my career that I was going to follow my muse, you know, scampering off into the woods when I felt like it. And so whether that has been necessarily like a 
tried and true path for a career. I don't know that I would necessarily like advise this, but it just means I keep myself entertained by just sort of following what I'm interested in at the moment. <laughs> so for a while, it was doing this. Then I decided I want to do this whole series based on fairy tales and examining like what happened to the girls who didn't get rescued by princes and hauled off to live in a castle and never have to think again. What happened to Little Red Riding Hood and Goldilocks and, oh gosh, who was the third one? Gretel. Barbie. You know, like, <laughs> Barbie. But, you know, like, there's there's the girls who, who had it all sort of given to them, right? And then they never had to th- have another thought as long as they lived. Like, their story ends with some man coming along and scooping them up and taking them off to live happily ever after. But then there's these other girls who, like, run screaming off into the woods and the story ends what happens to these girls <laughs> you know, it's like, the, like you know the bear scares her or the wolf scares her or the witch scares her and then they just run off screaming in the woods and thinking about that was interesting to me so it was like i'm gonna paint about that for a while and then that led into like you know a whole series of animals that were like assuming elements dragging pieces of uh, hip-hop culture back into the woods to sort of create this new urban woods culture like just i follow that and then it's like you know what I totally got into that, and now I want to go over here and do this other thing. So I just sort of chase my muse. Now I'm really into this. I'm going to go paint this for a while. I'm going to go paint that. It stops me from... I don't feel like I ever kind of run deeply into a rut. I don't ever feel like, oh, God, I'm so sick of painting you know, this, like, oh, God, I can't believe I have to paint this again, or people because keep Because that's what I'm this. known for, and people right. have that. Right, right, right. I worry it's a little confusing for people. Sometimes they might not always follow the thread. I see the thread. The thread is my obsessions. <laughs> you know, so I see a thread. I don't know if everybody else sees a thread. But I'm just painting the things that I get excited about because that's what I, I want to be excited. I don't want to walk into the studio and just be like, oh, God, another day at the easel, cranking out, you know, naked Catwoman paintings. It's like if I just wanted to make money, I would just paint naked Catwoman and just cash checks all day. But I have other stuff I want to talk about. You know, I have other stuff I want to think about and paint about. So, yeah. Well, I have, not a lot of naked Batman paintings, are there? I've painted naked Batman. I haven't seen. Fully naked? Yes, but you can't okay. see his junk because there's like some cloud cover and stuff. But um, and I have painted, actually I've painted naked Batman several times, sometimes for commissions and stuff. But you know the oh gosh, I think the thing with that is you know it's it's not I don't I don't want to just do the same thing over and over again. That's not interesting to me. And I have some friends who sort of get a little stuck. Success can be. A prison, right? You know, if you get really successful for doing something, there is a certain pressure, you know, like you were, I think you were saying, like from galleries and stuff to just keep, because everybody wants to make money. The gallery wants to make money. You want to make money. Why not? Of course, you need, you need money. You got bills to pay. But I, I'm pretty happy that for the most part, every time I've kind of shifted gears a little bit, like, oh, now I'm going to do this kind of stuff. Like people seem to sort of follow along. You know, I do something and I'm like, I don't know if anybody's going to think this is interesting except me. But there's enough people out there who are, I mean, we're just a huge, diverse planet. (laughs) I think there's enough people interested in enough things that so far, you know, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and knocking on wood a little bit, that things don't, you know, fall flat. It would, it would suck to do something and send it out there and it just like, you, you send the balloon aloft and it falls like a lead weight. Like that would be really sad. Um, but it seems so to work out. If, if you're listening closely, folks, 
what Isabel's really trying to push here is she's available for commissions of naked superheroes. <laughs> All right. Less, so, I would like to paint less naked superheroes. <laughs> I once had somebody send me um, a picture of themselves and their paramour, I don't know, wife, girlfriend, in the shower naked asking if I would paint them as like Batman. And, and it, I think it might have been Batman. I can't remember. And it was just like, I didn't ask for this. <laughs> you know, like, I have to just seal that envelope back up and just put it right back in the mail and send it back to them. Um, Never made it to me. No, uh, I didn't get that. Terms, I was, I was, I've always struggled with this because I'm not an artist in your scene. I, I don't know what the right terminology is or was, but terms like, um, pop surrealism, underground art, or, you know, whatever. There, there were all these different labels going around back when Juxtapose was helping right. develop the scene in the Low 90s brow. and 2000s. Lowbrow, that's the other one. Yeah. Have Now that it's been a while and that, that scene has sort of uh, had a, a couple of arcs, have we settled on any term that really covers that period yet? I, you know, I don't know. I always feel like that's not, I don't feel like that's the job of the artist. You know, like pop art yeah. was just sort of this, disparate bunch of fun stuff until some journalist came along and called it pop art. And then that allowed that movement to really sort of take off and, and cohere, right? Because that's how that tends to work. Back a really long time ago, like back in the 90s, um, this Canadian art magazine, I think it was an art magazine, got a whole bunch of us, like me and Eric White and a bunch of other people together. I think we were in the basement of a strip club with some journalists and they had video cameras and stuff. And they wanted us to discuss exactly what you're talking about. What do we call this? You know, and people had different ideas and people were throwing different things out there. Nothing stuck. <laughs> it didn't work. We didn't come up with it. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people felt sort of offended by lowbrow, like lowbrow, like how dare you call my work lowbrow. I never quite understood it. Like Juxtapose Magazine picked up my work kind of early on and started promoting it, which was great. I felt a little bit, I don't know, like some sort of imposter syndrome or something, because it's like, I went to art school and I do paintings based on like classical masterworks. Am I allowed to be in this playground? Like, is it okay for me to be here? Like it felt, you know, I was worried somebody was going to go, fraud you don't belong here you and your highfalutin art references get out of here i think that's why things like you know pop surrealism were coined you know to sort of be more inclusive what i like what i like about all of these things pop surrealism lowbrow all of it is that it does feel inclusive like i like an open playground i like a wide open gate and an accepting welcome mat i like the idea that like it's not there's not rules and there's not snootiness and there's not like you can't be part of our clique or our club. It's like, no, you know, come play. Let's all play together. Let's all it's roomy. There's lots of room for everybody. And that's a good thing. So I don't worry or give I don't really give any thought to those things. I feel like that's what writers are gonna do. Writers are gonna write an article about my work and they're gonna call it something. I for a while a couple artists were using the term imagist which I thought was kind of interesting. It's a little vague. I don't think anybody knows what it means, which is kind of a problem. You know, pop culture works because you get it right away. Pop, you know, pop art, like art for the people, for the populace, for the popular masses. What is an imagist painting? No, please explain. I don't know. <laughs> so, right. you know. Could be any group. Right, right. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. making images. So how does that, I like narrative art. I feel like that does apply to me, but I don't see that as a necessary term. And I don't think that's something that's going to like take off as a big movement. Ah, narrative art is the new thing, kids. Like I just right. don't, you know, I don't see that happening. So 
I don't really feel like it's my job or my problem. It's like I, I look forward to reading what other people who are smarter than me and have given this some thought think about that and how they want to, you know, handle that categorizing and stuff. But that's not really... I got too much other stuff to think about. What's for dinner? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I like to get at this leap of faith moment that a lot of people have, especially within the arts, because when you're going into art for a career, you kind of often realize that you might not be rich and that you're going to have to sort of leap into something where the safety net is going to be a little thin or lacking entirely. Did you ever have a moment where you decided you know what, I'm going for it. I'm going to be a painter, an illustrator. It was always the thing for you. Um, that's a twofold question that I will try to keep brief because I could talk all day. So two things. One, I think from the time I was very little, I knew that this was really the only thing that I was good at. You know, I'm scrawny. I suck at sports. I'm kind of nerdy. Uh, you know, I didn't as a, as a kid have super good, like people skills. I was a little bit odd and I could draw. I drew a lot. Right. You know, when you spend a lot of time by yourself drawing, it's like that thousand hour thing. You know, you just spend a thousand hours at it. You're going to get better. It's what I tell my students all the time. It's like, if you just keep drawing, you really only have one trajectory. You can't go down. You can't suck more by doing something more. It's impossible. You're only going to get better. So just do it, you know, put the work in. So you get better and better. And when you're a kid and you display some skill at something, whatever it is, music, whatever, you know, parents pat you on the head, their friends pat you on the head and they go, oh, you're so good. You know, you're, are you going to be an artist when you grow up? And they're like, yeah, I'm going to be an artist when I grow up. So I didn't really give that a lot of thought. I just sort of went that way. Um, But that, that process and then really making something happen with that and trusting it like you said sort of taking a leap of faith throwing yourself off the cliff right and then trusting that you'll land on something a little more substantial than a cloud or a pile of rocks um you know when we when we were in new york i was working uh as an arts administrator i was running a performance art program and a gallery space and making my art kind of in the closet And I was nervous to show it to people because I thought people would just be like, you know, like a dilettante, like, oh, you know, sure. Oh, and she also paints, uh, you know, eye roll, partly because I was on the other end of that situation. I was running a gallery space, so I was getting submissions all the time, my full day looking at, you know, this is how old this was, holding up slide sheets, holding Uh, up slide sheets to the light and looking at slides going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, uh uh-huh. And the idea that that somebody would be looking at my slide sheets that way was a little bit paralyzing, right? It was really hard to put myself in that situation. So we moved to California and it just felt like this is this is my moment. You know, it's a whole new field of people. They don't know me. They don't know that I used to run this, you know, be program director at this gallery space. They don't know me in that persona. So I'm going to arrive here at this brave new world as a complete unknown, just a giant question mark with this like lanky red hair on it. And that's me arriving in California. And I told myself, I said, you have one year, you have one year to make it as an artist you know, to, wow. to have some kind of success with this art thing, or you have to go get another arts administration job. While your resume is still useful in some form, while this still means something on paper, you have one year or you got to go hoof it over to some museum or something and try and get a job. Uh, and we landed here and I grabbed the, was probably the Guardian, the San Francisco Guardian 
and opened it up, and there was a call. Brett Ronselli was running this little gallery on Divisadero Street called Art Attack. I think it maybe even had exclamation points in the name. I can't remember for sure. And it was a call for entries for the All Elvis Art Show. I was like, All Elvis Art, bring us your Elvis Art. And I had never painted Elvis Presley before. I'd never really given a lot of thought to Elvis Presley before. I had like the Elvis Presley cookbook. I enjoyed Elvis, but that was about the extent of it. Um, and so I did an Elvis Presley painting on a TV tray of him kind of green and corpse-like, huge, being assumpted up into heaven by all these little tiny cherubs, these little angels, these putti, um, and the whole rim of the tray was all these pharmaceutical drugs, all different kinds of pills kind of happily bouncing around. Uh, and I took this painting, I think it probably took a picture of this painting, to the gallery, and Brett was great, and I walked in and I said, so, you know, I've just come here from New York. I am really the premier Elvis painter. You know, you really can't have an Elvis show without me because, I mean, I am the artist of Elvis. I mean, you have to have me in the show. And, you know, he's a good sport. He's like, yeah, okay, you know, bring us your Elvis painting. And they sold it. And I was like, okay, this this might work. This art thing, this art thing could work. I could do this. I won't have to get a job. <laughs> it's very inspiring. Like, I won't have to get a real job. That was kind of it. And I just kept sort of chasing stuff like that. That was this moment of make or break. Like if that hadn't worked out, if I'd done the painting and nobody had bought it, I would have kept trying. I wouldn't have given up right then. I'd, I would still be trying, but I probably would have had to tack my sails a little differently, you know, and come, mm -hmm. at the, come at the rocky shore from a different angle. As it was, I had some immediate affirmation like, oh no, I think people might actually, if I put the painting out there, somebody might actually buy the paint. This is good. It worked out. So you gave yourself a year. Did you ever in the ensuing months think, oh, eight months left, seven months left? Was it a real, was it a real uh, time frame for you? No, because it was working. Like things were happening and stuff was working. And I was very motivated not to have to get a job, like really, really motivated. So I, I would take like a part-time job to save myself from having to go get like a museum job. I was like, I worked as a barista, you know, like all the things you do when you don't want to have to get like an actual job job. And I started making, uh, I got a kiln, K-I-L-N, kiln, and started making ceramic stuff. I was like, you know what? If people aren't ready to pay, I mean, at that point, I was selling my paintings for like $350. And it was like, if people aren't ready to pay, you know, $350, maybe they'll pay $300 for a really nice teapot. It's a functional item. They can justify it, right? It's something they can actually use. So I was putting a lot of time into making these, these really like just crazy beautiful ceramic items. And then that sort of led to more straight up art ceramic items, like these busts of, you know, uh, vampire Elvis Presley and these alien chihuahuas with big glittery dealy bobbers on their head and all this kind of stuff. And that sustained me. It, it kept the boat afloat. So I didn't have to get a quote unquote, you know, real job until, you know, things start shifting, shifting, shifting. And then one year there was this giant El Nino rainstorm and it wiped out my ceramic studio back flooded from the street like actual feces <laughs> into the studio and I was like sign from God time to like put it all behind the painting now you know this was the thing that was kind of keeping the boat afloat it's time to like go okay it's ceramic stuff it's distracting it's keeping me from like focusing 100% on the paintings we're gonna just put it all in the trash and it's gonna be all painting all the time now so yeah it just that's when it became all painting all the time well, it worked. I, I like the idea of giving yourself kind of a hard stop. I don't know if a, a year is not a lot of time. Maybe it, it probably seems like a lot of time when you're younger. Now I'm like, God, a year? I, 
That's enough time. It goes time by to... fast. Yeah. yeah. We had just come off giving ourselves a year. Like when we when we had decided that we were going to move to California from New York City, we were like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do it. We're kind of self-daring. Like, I dare you. I dare you. To, I dare you and me. I dare us. I dare us to do it. And we're like, okay, man, pinky shake. We're doing this. Uh, we said, okay, we've got a year. Let's give ourselves one year. We're going to ring New York City dry. We're going to do everything. And then we'll leave. You know, there'll be nothing left for us. We'll have done it all. And the funny thing was, as that year was going along, we kept saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to leave in a year. You know, six months later, we're like, yeah, in a year, we're going to leave. Eight months later, like, yeah, in a year, we're going to leave. The the meter wasn't moving. Like, the calendar pages <laughs> right. weren't being torn off. You hadn't hit start yet. Right, right. Yeah. But the crazy thing, okay, life has a way. Um, right at that mark, right when it was, and I mean, no joke, this is for real. Like, right when it was a year, both our apartments um, that my then boyfriend, now husband, were living in, we had two little tiny rent-controlled apartments that we were renting from other people, which is illegal. You're not supposed to do that. Um, both of those original leaseholders turned those apartments over and said, you know, I'm never moving back to New York City if you want. Like, both of them at the same time in two totally different parts of the city, you know, two totally different people with totally that said, you know, I'm no, I'm never moving back to New York. If you just want to take over my lease and have my one bedroom in New York part for $350 a month, you could, you could have it. And it felt like right. this test. It felt like, you know, like New York was trying one last throw out all, you know, rip out all this stuff. It's like, here, it, can you really leave? What if we offer you this? What if we give you this? Can you leave? And it was like, Oh my God! Can we leave? Can we? Can we do it? Can we leave? And we did. And there's still this like I can't believe we walked away from two two rent controlled apartments. But it was it was we had to just throw ourselves off the cliff. We just piled everything we owned into a 1964 Chevy Malibu with a V8 truck engine dropped into it, and we drove nice. across country with everything that fit into the car, which was a lot because it's a huge car. Um, and we just left, and we left it all behind, and we just took a chance. And we're like, God, I hope it works out. You know, we didn't have jobs. We didn't have apartments. We didn't have anything. We just left. I think it's working out. You're still here. If you can still make it in the Bay Area of California, it's working out. It, thankfully, That's... when we moved here, it was easier. You know, I have to say, like, it, when we moved here, we were sort of the second wave. Some of our friends had come out and colonized before us. And they were writing us postcards saying, I picked an avocado from the backyard and now I'm eating it. And we're like, what? alien language is this? <laughs> what right. are you talking about? I have what to go down avocado? to the bodega to get an avocado. Yeah. Um, it it was easier then. And you could encourage people and you could write your friends and say, you know, the quality of life here is really nice. You should come and check it out. And I don't feel like I can say that anymore because who could afford to live here? I mean, it's bonkers in the Bay Area right now. You know, I don't know how I would ever say like, yeah, you should totally move to the Bay Area because it's, it is awesome, but it's prohibitively expensive. I mean, it's just crazy. The whole West Coast of yeah. the United States is crazy. I don't, I don't know where that pocket is on the West Coast. Maybe if you get up into Humboldt County or something, but there's some trade-offs with that. You know? Right. I'm going to quote you. I'm going to quote you. I don't know when you said this or where I pulled it up online, but I want to. I want to know. I'm going to read a, a, a few lines. And Ooh, how exciting! If, if if you stick by this, if there's anything you would change or add to it, it's it's so simpatico with super nice club. So it's a great quote. Ready for it? Yeah. I'm not going to do your voice. <laughs> I'd love to hear you. Not going to do your voice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Um, 
I'm not entirely sure. I kind of want to do your voice. I, no, do it. I'm, do I'm it. not. I'm not entirely sure how to articulate it without sounding like a big dork. But I really do believe in trying to do right by people, helping when and how you can. I think it's idiotic to have to keep reinventing the wheel. Knowledge and skills should be shared. So professionally, I'm not a cutthroat, competitive person at all. Card games and sports are a different story. The world in general would probably be a better place if everyone had their hand out to support and pull up the people who need it, bravo, whether it's giving honest feedback to someone about their work or sharing food with people who are hungry. Being generous with yourself is free and easy. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's a great quote. That's that's what? how I'm trying to move through life. I mean, I, I believe that a hundred percent. And it's, it is why I teach because I believe that I have accrued, you know, scraped together some knowledge, you know, one way or another. It's like what I studied in school is completely different from what I'm doing right now in my art. The skills that I learned there are very different. The, the brain part is the same. The physical skills, I was not studying painting and oil painting and certainly not old master oil painting techniques. But the skill, I want it to flow through me and live on with other people. I don't, I don't want to like hoard my skills or hoard my knowledge or hoard my resources or hoard anything. You know, I want this stuff to flow through me and then live on in other people, as many people as possible. Like let's, I just, I don't understand being selfish with knowledge at all. I really don't. I really, really don't. I think what you say in here is that the world would probably be a better place if people had their hand out to support more. And that is the, the sharing of knowledge, the sharing where... <laughs> God, this is a whole big conversation, but just, you know, this idea that we want to hoard our ideas so that we can be the ones who dominate sort of right. the global market instead yeah. of being content maybe with just what's okay in your own backyard. Like, how about dominating your part of your city? Right. You know, and, and then giving your idea to somebody else in another city. Yeah. To, to go there instead. It's like, no, that'd be competing against myself in case I want to be the next whatever major player like everybody just wants the idea of this obscene relentless wildly corrosive growth right yeah that, that we're all sort of expecting uh, well, otherwise we're not gonna about, retire <laughs> yeah and that's all about competitiveness and and this desire for wealth that i don't understand like this idea that people have billions of dollars and so like you don't need nobody needs that much money you know, if, if the people who had that much money would sort of disperse it in some way, I think they could make a huge difference to many, many people's lives. It's like you nobody on earth needs billions of dollars. You just don't like nobody needs that much money, you know, and it's so it's so effortless and easy to be kind and generous and helpful to people. It's it's uh, I don't want to disagree with a guest. I don't think I have before, <laughs> but. Free. I mean, if I had $2 billion, I could buy, you know, three of my favorite paintings, past master paintings. Yeah, Who but says I don't want to have those? No, I'm kidding, right? Like the price of these, <laughs> these old arts. Do we have time? Do you have time for me to play this game I like to call Butcher the Old Master's Name? Oh, sure. Great. I just invented it because I was going to reference these folks. But instead, let's play this game. I'm going to terribly mutilate the name. And then you can correct me if I know. and tell me what inspiration you drew. Just briefly. We'll do a quick one. Just be okay. like, oh, yeah, I got lightning my this round. from that. I, I get it. Lightning it's round. It's a lightning round. Okay. So the first up is um, Artemisia Gentilesci. Artemisia Gentileschi. 
She was an amazing outlier, a woman painter when there weren't a lot of women painters. She had an incredibly uh, tortuous life and career. Uh, her father hired a painting tutor for her. He raped her, uh, said, oh, it's okay, I'll marry you, and then didn't. And then she basically... Her father. Said, her father, her tutor raped her. So she, he jobbed her out, like said, oh, you have some talent. Let's get you a painting tutor. And then her painting tutor, uh, who's the guy's... Tessie raped her, uh, I believe, often, frequently, and she went to court and they, to find out if she was telling the truth, they tortured her to see, you know, if she was being honest about this rape business. And then he came to court and said, like, oh, it's okay, I'll marry her. Like, who would want to marry their rapist? I can't imagine. So she had some really intense stuff that she had to get through in her life, but she was recognized, you know, to a certain degree for her skill. And a lot of people at that time were, you know, not a lot of people, a fair number of people had painted this idea from uh, the story from the Bible of Judith and Holofernes. One of these sort of things like, oh, I will sleep with this evil Holofernes, and when he's now, you know, post-sex, like, sacked out, I'll cut off his head, and then, you know, that will save my people. Um, people have painted this image. She painted this really visceral version of this painting where Judith is in the act of cutting his head off and there's blood spurting. And people uh, have theorized that the the Judith in the painting is based on herself, sort of self-portrait, mm -hmm. and that the head of Holofernes, who, whom she's cutting off, is the head of uh, Tessie, her rapist. So um, her work is sort of so. powerful and amazing and emotional. Like a lot of people would paint, you know, Judith just with the basket and a head, you know, sort of like after mm -hmm. the fact. But she was like right in there, like in the moment, like, ah! Uh, so she's yeah. an amazing, amazing lady. There's a show of her work right now at the National Gallery in uh, London. You can pay, I think, 15 bucks or something to do like a virtual tour. Uh, it looks like it's an amazing show. I wish I could go see it in person. We can't. This is nope. Artemisia. Okay. That's a great one. That's a great one. Okay. Round two. I, I think I got this one. Uh, Jacopo Pontormo. Jacopo Pontormo. Yeah. Close yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. Pontormo. Hey, Pontormo. He's a beautiful, beautiful painter. Uh, Hit me with another that's one. That's it? Yeah, that's, that's all, all I got. got. He's, he's just, okay. He has a beautiful way with like bodies and color. It's great. All right. Sorry, Jacopo. You didn't get raped, so your stories get right. cut off. That's <laughs> it. All right. All right. We're going to cut it off after two. That's fine because I just don't want to offend my Italian uh, listeners <laughs> any, any more than that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to play with your pronunciations. They just, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not Italian. What do you want? What do you want? They're delightful. Um, <laughs> you're teaching right now. I am. What are you teaching and where are you teaching? I want to know that. I'm teaching at CCA. I, pri prior to this, I was teaching uh, just sometimes in my house. I would have like high school students uh, come do painting and stuff in my studio. I was also teaching ukulele, which I think is hilarious. I'm the least likely music teacher. Uh, I am a self-taught ukulele player. Marcos gave me a ukulele one year for Christmas. I really enjoyed it and it became sort of like a, a religion. I was like, this is like Prozac with strings. You know, it's like an antidepressant. You cannot be in a crappy mood playing the ukulele. It's like ukulele, impossible. Right. It's kind of like, um, you know, that old Steve Martin joke when he was playing the banjo and he was like, oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder, playing a bling bling. You know, it's like it's impossible to be sad with certain kinds of instruments. So I, I almost felt like walking around with a sandwich board, you know, like everybody should play ukulele. You, everybody should just pick up a ukulele and play. It's it's chimp easy. You know, it's like four strings. You could be playing the day you get a ukulele. Like learn a couple chords and you can play like Big Rock Candy Mountain in about 10 minutes, like not hard. Um, so I was teaching ukulele students, which I thought was hilarious because I can't read music, right? 
but I can read uh, the little notes that say C and D and F. You know, I can do that and my fingers know where to go. So that's what I teach. <laughs> I can teach you how to play music on a ukulele. I cannot teach you how to read music. I can't read music. So so it's kind of the paint-by-numbers version of ukulele playing. Well, with, with some feeling, with some soul. Um, with feeling. With feeling. Okay. Once more with feeling. Um, and I think that's when I kind of tripped into realizing that I really, really liked teaching. I really like sharing information. I really like passing along knowledge. I have a lot of enthusiasm for things. I get very excited about stuff, things that make me happy. I want to like spread it. Like this made me really happy. And, and there is something like I didn't play music until I got this ukulele and it was an epiphany for me. Suddenly I understood all the boys in high school playing guitar and drums in their garage. You know, like I never got it before. I never got it. I was just like, what is the, uh, whatever. Suddenly it's like, there's a part of your brain. I don't know what it is that is specifically tickled by playing music. It's probably the same if you like just sing along, you know, with your favorite song on the radio. But I swear to God, it must be a very primitive, like early part of our brain because it's very powerful. I think it's like us sitting around the fire, you know, banging our sticks on rocks and, you know, grunting out songs. That part of the brain still responds really strongly in a very strong, primitive way to any kind of music. So there's the thrill of making music yourself. Then... There's a thrill, a, a totally next level up, playing music with other people. You get a couple people together. Now you're all playing ukulele together. Or somebody's banging on something and somebody else is singing. Totally different part of your brain is starting to light up. Then, next level, you do that in front of people. Turns out there's a whole other part of your brain, I never like tapped into this, that likes the performative aspect of music making and the feedback you get, even if it's just like a campfire sing-along, like you and a couple of your friends are playing music and your six other friends are now singing along and there's something that's happening. All of you together are having this feeling, you know, and there's this reverberation, not to get too woo-woo about it. It's really no, but cool. it's connection. It's, it's connection, real connective tissue. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I had never, art making, for all that it's fabulous, is so fucking solitary, <laughs> you know, that this was, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, revelatory to me. Like, it completely changed some part of my brain. It was like, oh, I have been, this is an atrophied part of my brain that I need to feed. I need to like lean into this a little bit because this feels amazing. So that's when I realized like, ah, oh, I need more contact with my fellow chimps. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting enough contact with my fellow chimps. I need more chimp to chimp contact. And that really played out well for me with teaching because I want to share. I want the knowledge to pass through me. I want the things that I've taken in. I kind of want to be like a funnel. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I will distill what I have learned to the best of my ability so that it is most easily understood by you. That's, you know, what I'm trying to do. So CCA um, had asked for a year or two, like, do you want to come teach painting? Do you want to come teach painting? And the way I paint is so weird and specific to what I'm doing that I didn't want to it's like, I wouldn't want to teach somebody to do what I do because it's probably wrong. You know, it's just, it's how I do it. I don't think it's how everybody should do it. It's just my quirky way of getting images down. Um, but when they asked, would I want to teach a concepts class, then my brain is lighting up. Like, yes, do I want to teach people how to think, how to better express their ideas, how to form better ideas, how to work with, you know, what kind of colors make you 
have a response. Like your body literally responds to different kinds of colors. Even if you're colorblind, you can be 100% colorblind and the color blue will still slow your heart rate, take your pulse down, you know, possibly Mm. because, you know, we're trained to look at like the blue sky and the blue water and and see open expanses without predators in them and go, ah, nothing's coming to kill me. Ah, yeah. And we are stimulated by those. So that's a tool. Use it. You know, symbolism is a tool. We have all kinds of symbols, cultural symbols, you know, all kinds of things that that mean things to us that you can use visually to communicate. Use it. Like there's all these things you can do where you place things in an image impacts how that image feels to you, whether something is up high, down low, pointy, smooth, you know, what you're doing with your compositional lines, like this stuff is fascinating to me. And I love teaching it. Like I love teaching people like how to build the skeleton inside your art, right? You can be an amazing draftsman. You can be an incredible painter. But if you don't have a solid idea inside that, you know, there's this, it's hollow, you know, it's this beautiful hollow thing. But like put, build the skeleton first, you know, really work on your ideas, really flesh out your concepts, really think about what you're trying to say and how you want to get that across and what you want people to feel when they're looking at it. What are you trying to connect with in the person looking at this image? Like, that's really exciting to me. So, you know, the challenge is to get students to sort of slow it down a little bit because the impulse is like, okay, that's the assignment, start drawing. It's like, stop it, Right. slow your roll. Don't even, don't even draw anything yet. Like, first, we're going to just think. Maybe we'll make some lists of words, you know, maybe we'll do a little research. We're going to, we're not going to draw yet. Slow it down. (laughs) And that's hard. It's like build the skeleton, then add the muscles, then add the skin, then put the clothes on, then paint the sky. You know, it's like you have to, and I don't mean that literally. I mean like idea, metaphorically, like build the skeleton of ideas, you know, before you start dressing it up. Like you have to have something inside something, some meaning, something for us to resonate with and respond to. So that's a thousand times more interesting to me than teaching a technique class, like how to paint, how to draw. That's what, yeah, that's, that's what is exciting. That's such me. an important class too. That's such an important class because there are very skilled and, and famous painters who are great with, with the technique, with illustration. And you'll look at the pieces, or at least I will, and they'll leave me cold because the symbolism that's in there is all just there as part of the graphic design. Mm-hmm. It's not part of an actual story at all. Right. I'm such a sucker for story. And I'll look at it and appreciate the skill that it took, uh, but I'll get lost. I'll lose my interest because it, it's just a piece at that point for me of really great graphic design. Right, right, right. right? That's how I categorize it. I'm right. not saying that's what it is. It's still art, whatever. But for me, it goes into that bucket. Um, well, and there's a place for that. There's a place for design. There's a place for beautiful decorative art. I love decorative art. I don't have a problem with decorative art. But, you know, if, if your job is to communicate ideas, you know, or tell stories, then you want more. You know, you want more than just a decorative piece. So we hope. It's a hard I was class. Reading, it's hard. <laughs> I, I was reading earlier today uh, a manuscript by a, a man named Dennis McKenna, brother of Terrence McKenna. If you're in the mushroom world at all, folks, you know who the McKennas are. And in it, he was saying um, that great minds, that the really bright minds gravitate towards teaching. They love to teach because they want to share what they've learned their whole life. So kudos to you that. from from Dennis McKenna. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Um, curveball question for you. Oh, sure. When the, when the vaccine arrives for COVID, mm-hmm. where will you be in line? 
Oh, I'll be front of the line. Front of the line. Middle. I'll be front of the line. line. I hope I I have access to be early in line. I hope as an educator, I want to get back into the physical classroom. Teaching online sucks. It sucks for me. It sucks for them. I mean, obviously, we're making the best of it. There are some tiny benefits, you know, for people who have a hard time, you know, speaking up in a physical world. Some of those people are a little more comfortable in a Zoom world, but for the most part, it's it's a less than experience. You know, I really want to get back into the classroom. I really want to be back where we can have an actual sense of community, you know, and bond and form real relationships with each other. It's impossible to have casual conversation. You know, in a Zoom classroom, you know, students can't walk up to each other and go like, oh, I like your T-shirt. I went to that show too. You know, I was sitting over here. Like, you can't. And I can't either. You know, I can't just sort of walk up to a student in Zoom and start talking to them. You have to, you know, you have the whole, it, it's changed things in a way that it, it stymies forming any kind of real close, you know, bond or relationship. So I will be first in line. If, if I have the opportunity, okay. I will be first in line. Great answer. But does it change your answer knowing that the vaccine is made by the lizard people, the same people who manufactured <laughs> COVID? Well, I assume that the lizard people are invested in keeping us alive, either because they're using us as their workers or they're harvesting something from our pituitary glands. It's all glands. mind control. Yeah. It's all I, mind control, okay? You know. Or, or, or this is all a simulation like the Matrix and none of this is real anyway and it doesn't matter. So we can go get the vaccine because it's just a bunch of uh, computer zeros and ones. So, um, We do a super nice challenge each each episode here where the featured super nice, lovely, exalted guest, that's you, uh, issues a challenge to the Super Nice Club members. That's you, listener. You're a member. Even if, even if you never heard of the Super Nice Club and you're just a fan of Isabel, you're in the Super Nice Club now. Something that they can do each day or once just to make the world a little nicer or even just their world a little nicer. Do you have any kind of challenge for them? Yeah, but the challenge for me is going to be stopping with just one thing. I have I have so many things that I, I want to encourage people to do that it's hard to just go, and this is the one thing you should do. I mean, if it was only going to be one thing, I think it's super important right now. And this is going to sound, I don't know what this is going to sound like. People really need to tip. You know, it's like if you have any kind of interaction with anybody who is, I don't know, bringing your groceries or handing something to you, you know, across a table, you know, these workers, these people who are in restaurants and stuff right now, they don't have the benefit of waiting on you at a table. And I know the the prevailing system is if you de- take out, you don't have to tip. But I really feel like mm-hmm. right now, we kind of need to rewrite that right now. And, and get, you know, these people are working really hard. They're putting themselves at risk, you know, to be these are people are, are all kinds of frontline workers. If you have any kind of a situation where you can tip the person bringing your groceries or handing you your takeout or whatever you can do, like, do it because it's going to make a huge difference. A couple dollars to you isn't going to make a big impact in your life. It's going to cumulatively make a big you know, impact on the person who's doing that work. So that's something that I just feel like I got to stand on a tiny soapbox for just a couple minutes and really, really, really encourage people. Oh, I applaud it. You know, to tip. I applaud it. I am on that tip. I am um, on that tip. I have doubled my tip amount yeah, me during too. COVID when I can afford it because exactly. of, for that exact reason. Yeah. You know, your your barista is making nothing now right. and their rent hasn't changed. Right. I mean, so people, if you can afford it and you're not you're not yourself completely financially hemorrhaging like right. so many of us are. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you can afford it, anything anything yeah. you can afford is going to make a difference. I mean, the the people working in these kind of jobs were 
working at a job where are working at a job where their wage is set at this ridiculously low rate based on the idea that they will be making more income from tips and suddenly that's off the table so now they're just working at like slave wages so it's really not you know i mean ultimately we should rethink that whole system but until we do that right people so that's that's one thing the other thing is um sort of twofold they they did a study recently i don't know how practical this is for most people but they did a study recently that found that biodiversity brings joy right Hmm. so you know the idea is that the more bird species specifically the more bird species you're exposed to the happy you you are which is just so interesting to me. I love birds. So I find this just like, well, yeah. of course that's true. You know, it's one of those, for me, that's one of those things like they had to do a study. They had to pay scientists to figure this out. Like I knew that. Right. But they've literally like drilled it down to the point where they figured out that being exposed to fir- 14 extra species of birds is the equivalent in your happiness level of making an extra 150 bucks a month. Wow. Which is crazy, right? It's like, how can yeah. just looking at a bunch of birds raise your sense of well-being and your innate happiness that much? But they have, it, it gives you as 11 much- 11 personal... bucks a bird, folks. Yeah, get out there, yeah. find some birds, see some birds, look at some nature. It's getting a little harder in winter, but you know. Birds and ukuleles. Birds and ukuleles. You, if, if, you're, if you're on an antidepressant, I'm not saying to stop them, but <laughs> add, birds and ukuleles birds might and ukuleles. help you decrease. Yes. Yeah, it's an added Put a thing. bird on it, stick a ukulele near it, you know, like figure out some way to sort of work that in. Um, I just, I do I also, miss the birds yeah. where I live now. Yeah, I we're, definitely noticed there's so many fewer songbirds in the, this part of Los Angeles. Well, I moved from Sonoma County and I had, uh, I was in suburbia, but there were, suburbia has a lot of trees. Yeah. That's the thing about it. So my backyard, I would hear so many different birds yeah. all the time. And now, I mean, I actually noticed the Darth of bird calls since moving to, and I'm, I'm kind of in a nicer remote part of Los Angeles area. So you would think there would be a lot of birds, but nah, Maybe so you need to set up some, I don't know, bird-friendly accoutrements, you know, a bird feeder, a bird house. A, uh, yeah, or uh, just <laughs> maybe we can just legislate against um, house cats. Oh, yeah, did I just lose keep... a lot of viewers? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, <laughs> Listeners. The pro-outdoor house cat lobby. Yeah, just kidding, folks. Just <laughs> kidding. Okay, so tip and 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 be kind to birds. Yeah, it, yeah. be around don't, birds. Don't shoot them. Be around yeah. birds. Expose yourself to nature. You know, it, I mean, not to like be all about chimps all the time, but hey, we are these natural creatures. We're happier when we're exposed to the natural world. You know, they've also done studies about how it's important to look at trees, be exposed to the outdoor world, open a window, like see something green, look at the blue sky. You know, we respond well. The color green, even just looking at the color green can help your state of mind a little bit. It's sort of an activating thing to your brain. Like there's there's this world we've cut ourselves off from and there's something that we need in it. So any way we can sort of reconnect with it a little bit, I think would be a good thing. Okay, so we have a bunch of challenges. Learn the ukulele. <laughs> you don't have to get learn out there the, around birds. Learn anything. Learn the penny whistle. Hit more. Learn the mouth organ. Uh, and go look at trees. Climb a tree. Pick up a yeah. you know. Pick up any. Put your hands instrument. in the dirt. Yeah. Put your hands. Get in your the hands dirt. in the soil. That's all good for you. Okay. Last thing here is you get to ask me a question. You get to fire off any question. Question for me. Anything you anything you want. You get to uh, be in control of the podcast now. Hand you the reins. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually really curious why you started this podcast and, and specifically what your, I mean, I know you say you're trying to get like 10% happier, right? You're trying to like 
gauge that little I'm very interested in this because this is very much where I'm coming from too this idea that like it's possible to be a spreader of uplift right yeah the podcast is something you know the, the starting the super nice club uh, is something that I've covered uh, a few times in the question for me um, but the podcast itself and that was just started on a whim I was actually outdoors with my hands in the dirt weeding when the idea hit me mm-hmm. Um as, as happens so often, you know, when we're outside, uh, these great ideas come upon us. Um, but the podcast itself took a long time, and I really resisted it because I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm just, like we were talking about before we started recording, I'm not really an audio learner. Um, but my friend Dave Savage kept urging me to do it. And now it's almost like a podcast. There's so many of them out there. It's almost kind of like it used to be where you just had to have a website, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That was the thing you had to have. And then you had to have a Facebook page. And now for a lot of different brands, which I have to call the Super Nice Club, you have to have a podcast. And I don't like to do things because you have to have them, right? I just like, I don't, I don't have the passion for doing it. But when COVID hit, it seemed, and, and I was really thinking about it prior too, but all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, that would be kind of a nice way to just connect with people mm-hmm. and 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 expand my sort of group of of friends as well. But the idea behind the podcast was really just to get a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds to talk about what they love doing. And the fact that they do love doing what they're doing for a living is just somewhere where I think that a nicer world would be a world, part of it, part of it would be a world well, where uh, where women don't get raped by their tutors right. all, or by anyone at all. But another part of that would be that people are doing what they love to do, you know, as much as possible. I know it's super idealistic and naive. Not everybody, not, you know, all the functions of, of civilization, somebody's got to do some work they don't love doing. But maybe at least in some part, they're doing what they love to do. And so showing examples of that, talking to people who have made the leap of faith uh, to doing that. And I think if you see examples of the path that you want to take and you hear examples mm-hmm. of that path being successful, then maybe it'll inspire some folks to to do their thing. It doesn't have to be painting or, right. you know, I have a lot of people that are in bands that come on here just because, you know, my personal circle, it happens to be more of the sort of art creative types, mm-hmm. but not everybody. I have activists on here. Um, all sorts of folks. And so that's where it came from. It just came from trying to get those stories out there. Yeah. And challenging myself to do something new as well. The podcast, doing something that I don't love doing and that I didn't have any interest in. That's always kind of fun for me when I recognize, oftentimes throughout my life, when I recognize something that I just sort of knee jerk oppose, later I'll go back and ask why. Mm, What's that all mm -hmm. about? Why why do you have a tenderness Mm -hmm. there? You know, because it, and then I'll I often find that, oh, I actually really like, you know, that's something I need to do. That's so interesting. You know? I relate to that a little bit in the sense of I look for, in my art, I look for what I call like crutches. You know, you're, you're seeking out the thing that made you a little uncomfortable and you want to kind of explore that. Like, why does this make me uncomfortable? Maybe I should lean into that, you know, and find out and then like explore this thing. I'm looking for things in my art like, I think I'm using this as an excuse to keep doing this, you know, artistically, visually. Like back when I was doing the TV trays, I was outlining a lot of stuff, my paintings with little black lines. And and I told myself, well, this is an homage to comics. I love comics. So I'm going to outline, I'm going to paint this character, but I'm going to outline them in black and I'm going to outline this table in black and I'm going to outline the lamp in black. What that was 
doing, though, was kind of a, a visual cheat because it was a crutch that allowed me to not deal with edges, right? Like painting, oh, painting edges is hard. Figuring out how to make something look like this is in front of that thing or this is closer. This edge is soft. This edge is fuzzy. You don't have to do any of that if you just pop a black line around everything. So I sort of realized I was doing that. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is a crutch. I got to, like, get rid of this crutch. So then I started painting, like sepia lines and then the line started like varying in width and weight a little bit and then eventually like I'm gonna let the line go I'm just gonna start painting edges you know and you sort of like kick your skill level up a little bit you know to to get there and then it was like oh my god you know I think the tv tray itself has become a crutch like I can't paint anything that's not a rectangle I can't paint anything that's bigger than 12 by 16 but this terrible fear like what if this is the only thing people like about my work what if this is the only thing that makes my work distinctive? What if nobody wants my paintings just on a, a flat piece of wood or a canvas or something? And, you know, making these leaps, it's like this had become a crutch. But throwing your crutches down is terrifying. You know, what if you can't mm -hmm. walk? <laughs> like, what if, what yeah. if your legs are misformed and you can't walk? You know, what if what if you're just flopping around like the Fiji mermaid? Like, what what do you do? And you just have to... It's That's what I think of when you say you're looking for these things that make you uncomfortable. It's like, I'm sort of doing that, but it's the opposite. Like I'm looking for the things that are almost too comfortable. Like I've gotten so comfortable in this. What can I do to kick that crutch out and push myself, you know, to, to up my game a little bit farther and push myself to do something better or make it harder for myself? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's very similar to that. You know, that's ultimately where the, the challenge was with the podcast. Like that's not my um, comfort zone Yeah, to just talk to people that I don't, well, I do talk to a lot of people that I do know at least a little bit. But like but you're saying, the discomfort large, of asking a stranger like, hey, yeah. you want to do my podcast? Yeah, that's hard. I don't love it. Yeah. Um, you and I don't know each other other than what, Instagram, mm -hmm. right? You know, mm -hmm. just like over a period of years and, and mutual friends. Right. Um, but still uncomfortable. Like, hey, I'm that kind of person that clicks on things <laughs> once in a while on Instagram and can I come take an hour and a half of your time? Right. You know, that's not my jam. I don't right. like asking things of people. I've never borrowed money from anybody. Right. I'm that guy, right? Like I, the other side, if you ask me, I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. But I just don't like asking. And uh, But have you ever partner, regretted it? No, I've just gotten better at asking and being less um, sort of ashamed <laughs> in my ask, like, <laughs> oh, you know, and apologetic about it. I'm sure you have so many people asking, right. you know, blah. You know, I'm just a little more direct now. And I actually, most people are like, yeah, super nice club. That sounds great. I'll do it. I'm like, oh. That's exactly okay. how I felt. Um, that's exactly yeah. how I felt. Like you asked, and I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And so that's, that's been great. And again, you know, thanks. But it's, it's, it's definitely a learning. It's a learning process. Real quick though, because I meant to ask you earlier, yeah. you referenced comics. Did you ever check out uh, my favorite thing is monsters. Oh God, I love novel. Emil Ferris's book so. Much. I knew you had to love it. If Isn't I could, I would eat it. I wish I could make it part of myself. Like I want to tear every single page out and like chew it up and digest it and just make it part of my body. I love that book so so much. I met her at Comic Con and I just about died. I just thought I was gonna like completely dissolve into just a puddle of happiness. Just like oh my her God, her story's great. Yeah, folks, check it out. If you if you're into graphic novels or comics. Or monsters, or just cool stories it's of someone amazing. of someone who has overcome adversity to continue to pursue their passion. Uh, Emil Ferris, E M I L Ferris. My favorite thing is monsters. It's brilliant. And it's it takes a minute. You've got to give it because the story is so expansive. 
And it's dense it. and it's big and it's yeah. beautiful and it, it gives yeah. as much as you're willing to put into it. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It's an easy read. You're not going to have to work hard. I mean, it's, it's lots of no. pictures. <laughs> right. It is. It's a, there's a picture on every page. <laughs> every page. <laughs> matter of fact. Pictures. So yeah. It's an easy read. Um, I was going to say when you were saying, you know, the, the fear and discomfort of, you know, talking to strangers. Have you seen those studies about, um, God, I wish I could remember the name of this guy. If I can think of it, I'll text it to you or something. But so they do a study. They get a bunch of people. They're going to put them all on the subway. And group A, don't talk to anybody. Group B, do what you would normally do. Talk to people, don't talk to people, whatever you know. They're like the control group. Group C, you have to talk to people on the subway. You're going to ride the subway and you have to like strike up a conversation with somebody and talk to them. And these people are like, oh God, you know, they're doing it for like Starbucks gift cards. These researchers say like you can get people to do anything for a Starbucks gift card. So, you know, group A thinks they've got it made. I get to ride the subway and I don't have to talk to anybody. I am the lucky group. You know, group B, they don't care. They're control group. Group C is just like, oh, I hate life. I have to go talk to strangers on the subway. They interview them afterwards. Group C is happier. Group C talked to people and it made them feel better. So then they're saying, well, now that you know this, won't you talk to people more? Now that you know that like interacting with your fellow chimps is like good for you, it like elevates your mood, it makes you feel better. They're like, no, no, because I think the person that I was talking to, they must have hated it. You know, they, people just want to be left alone. So then they do another study. They send people onto the subway and then they catch all those people coming off and say, hey, so, uh, you know, these people were talking to you. How, how do you feel? And, you know, they do some tests and stuff. Those people felt better too. Some random person thought they were worth talking to, were interested in what they had to say. That made them feel better. And it felt better for hours. They track these people. You feel better for hours after you have interactions. They drill down more in these studies. They find out even just walking by somebody on the street and smiling, which we can't do right now, or nodding, making a little eye contact, elevates both of your moods. It's better for everybody. You know, so it's like we we think our perfect world, and I'm guilty of this too. I think my perfect world is just a desert island with like my favorite things and my favorite people, you know, and just like pile of books and some music and some food. But that's hell. <laughs> right? right. It turns out yeah. we we don't understand ourselves at all. Everybody thinks they want to be in like the non-talking car of the subway. But the truth is being in the talking car, being in some form where you are interacting with people is will make you happier, will make you feel better. No matter how misanthropic you think you are, it will make you a better, a better mood, a better person. You'll have a better day. But we don't believe it. <laughs> you know, it's just this great tragedy. We don't understand it and we don't believe it. Everybody thinks like, well, but not me. That's true for other right. people, but that's not me. Yeah, I, I, I believe it. I definitely believe it. I leave the house to go to a, a coffee shop and I don't drink coffee. But I'll go, you know, I'll just get something. I'll get a, a lemon bar or whatever, you know, a tea or sometimes I'll get a coffee. And it is. I are, But I do know it's for the social aspect, even though I may only talk to the barista. Right. Right. That might be the only person, but it'll definitely be just that little bit of connectivity yeah, yeah, yeah. outside of, you know, a family, you know, here. But th that that extra connection. Yeah. Is, We're is social so animals. We're meant to be, you know, living in little social packs like that and having little interactions all the time, picking nits off each other and, you know, <laughs> scratching each other's backs and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, a T-shirt that just says "Pick my nits." Pick my nits. Yeah, see, see if anybody, see if they, if they get <laughs> I'd it. I'd be a little nervous to wear that T-shirt. Yeah. Honestly, no, yeah, I'd be a little right. nervous about the kind of interactions I'd have on the Bart wearing a T-shirt like that. I'd, I'd well, step off very well groomed, though. I would be so well groomed. 
Isabel, thanks for talking. I appreciate the the connectivity here. Yeah, me too. I'm sure that the next couple of hours will be uh, the better for it for me. So likewise, hopefully for you as well. Um, yep. And really, thanks for your time. Oh, thanks absolutely. for all of your wisdom on all of the studies that you're that you're privy to. <laughs> I read a lot. <laughs> for better or worse, sorry, I read a lot. No, it's great. I love all these studies. I'm going to go look up the bird one as soon as I get done here. Sweet. But really, thank you, thank you very much. My pleasure. There you have it. A nice conversation, a super nice conversation with a super interesting, super funny, just awesome energy, Isabel Samaris. Now, did you look at her work? Did you look at IsabelSamaris.com like I asked in the intro? If you haven't, go to it now. Go check it out. Look at what we're talking about. Um, Get her book if you really like it. I got her book. I got it just in time. I I thought that I had it, but I'm one of those people that has so many books that sometimes I buy double. Like I, I buy a second book of one that I already had, which is just silly because why not look at the bookshelf? I'll tell you why not, because all my books, most of them are in boxes in the garage. Yeah, I know. I need a library. The Super Nice Club needs a library. That's just that's on the that's on the dream list. A library, and a, a just a little couple thousand square feet for a, a pinball machines. Library, pinball machines, and a place for the camera collection. Library, pinball machine, camera collection. That's all that uh, for extra space. It's just like a, another floor. Okay, I don't need cars. Just those things. That'll do it. That's on my wish list for next Christmas. I'm just putting this out there in advance. Mm. All right. So next week we have we have Kim Wexler here. How crazy is that? Ray Seahorn is going to join us. Um, and just if you're, are you into acting? Like the art of acting, not just characters, right, and big names, but the artistry, the craft of it, serious acting. I enjoy it. I enjoy watching. I, I, you know, no great shakes myself, but watching people that are really serious about their craft when it comes to acting is such a delight to me. Same thing with writers, a lot of things, performers, any kind of performer that's really into it. Uh, so Ray Seahorn is one of those, one of those artisans, if you will, those craftspeople. And she's going to be on Nice Work next week. I hope you drop in, listen to the conversation. Thank you for being a member of the Super Nice Club. If you weren't a member before you listen to this podcast, you are now because with that hour of programming right there, bam, you are in the club. You're in. You're in it. You can visit us online, superniceclub.com. Go to Instagram, find us there, the Facebook, whatever. And just try to be a little bit nicer. That's it. Start with yourself. Love you a bunch. Stay nice. Closing my account at the angry store I just wanna be nice And baby, that's the rub That's why I'm joining The super nice club So come on in The world is wrong So what? Big deal.